Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. <laughs> Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why, so now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive materials delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock, and Jason Reed. Visiting in various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website. Bowie at cheapthings.com. Book early. S is for Space Oddity, the album. Yes, also known as David Bowie, to give it its correct title, Also known in the States as Man of Words, Man of Music. It's the second studio album by David Bowie, released under the title David Bowie by Philips in the UK. And as I just mentioned, Man of Words, Man of Music by Mercury in the US on the 14th of November 1969. It was reissued in 1972 by RCA Records confusingly, a space oddity. So we have talked previously about the chronology and the confusion that surrounds, uh, well, space oddity. So Mm. the thing is that everybody who got on board with Bowie uh, was Starman, which was a lot of people. There wasn't that many people into Bowie before that, was there? And then uh, Space Oddity, with the other previous albums, tips up the world of David Bowie with Mm. the famous cover with the Ziggy cut on and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it really threw everybody, didn't it? It did. Didn't have a clue as to what was going on. And there was also another promo video with Bowie with the Ziggy cut and all that kind of stuff, which again just confused it further and further. Uh, But anyway, so uh, let's recap. He'd already released his debut album, confusingly, yes, also called David Bowie, Mm -hmm. and that had stiffed. And it was like, it was a remarkably off-kilter piece, wasn't it? Which, you know, it wouldn't take much from that to his next stage of his career. Not at all. Not, it was a good little uh, stepping stone, I think. Yeah. It was, it was. I mean, well, it was Bowie kind of flailing about and trying to find what he was going to do. And it's great, you know, there's uh, an interview with Hutch on Cheap Things. Yes. Hutch, obviously, so involved in the building up, but not the album, but the building up and the writing of a lot of the songs yeah. on Space Oddity. And he was talking about all of the different things that David Bowie got up to. And he agreed completely that Bowie would just have a look at something, try it, it would fail, <laughs> and then you just move on, <laughs> even to the point of doing comedy. Yeah, I know, yeah. And, and there's, there's even one great bit in the interview. As I say, it's patreon.com forward slash cheap things, and it's this Bowie club that we've got going. Uh, but this, this interview with Hutch that I did recently, he was talking about uh, this one section of it whereby he's not expecting it at all, and they are doing Space Oddity. Mm. And uh, he starts going into like a Frankie Howard, really kind of camp routine. He'd not even warned Hutch mm. that he was doing it. Right. And so he'd been through all of those things and then came out at the other end of it 
as a person who made Space Oddity or, or David Bowie yeah, or Man of Words, yeah. Man of Music, which was a different beast altogether. And we'll, we'll get to the kind of psyche behind it mm. in a short while. Uh, but he was still managed by Ken Pitt and he split with Hermione. He'd also split with Hutch eventually. And he had that one hit single under his yeah. belt. Uh, and it was recorded while Bowie was still running the Beckenham Arts Lab every Sunday. So it is Bowie kind of moving. You have to remember as well, it's the late 60s, isn't it? And it's, moved, it's very much influenced by that whole sort of counterculture hippie thing, certainly. And he'd taken time off from the sessions to perform Space Oddity at the Maltese and Italian Song Festivals in the July of 1969. I think that is also, if you look at it, the handiwork of Ken Pitt, because he really did want David to be seen as a as an almost crooner, you know. And you, you look at the pictures of Bowie at the Maltese Song Festival, mm. particularly, and he's got this shirt and tie on and the suit yeah. and everything. I mean, you can imagine him in variety clubs and cabaret, can't you? I mean, yeah. Ken Pitt, you know, after a few years, he must have been thinking, oh, finally, we've got him now. He's had a hit single. This is going to be yeah, he's going to be this song and dance man they always wanted him to be. But the strange thing is, and obviously he was quite malleable, Bowie, at this point in time, wanting to be a success, and yeah. we'll discuss that later on. But in his own kind of life at that point in time, running the Beckingham Arts Lab and everything, mm. he was a proper nailed-on hippie, wasn't he? He was, definitely. <laughs> you know, he had, like, granddad vest on and the curly hair. He was yeah. decidedly Bob Dylan, but um, Ken Pitt makes him put his glad rags on to do <laughs> the Maltese Song Festival. Yeah, that's right, I Absolutely. mean, if, if that had happened and he'd become massive in Malta, he might... <laughs> <laughs> I know Nana Muscovy wasn't Maltese, but he could have been off. He could have been off doing tours with her. Oh, very possible. Oh, you imagine that. Uh, oh, Maltese blimey. pop sensation. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So, uh, released as a single in the July of 1969, Space Oddity was largely an acoustic number augmented by the composer's stylophone. As we know, we've been through this already, haven't we? We have, yeah. So we'll move on, shall we? So, to Unwashed and Somewhat Slightly Dazed? Yeah, might as well, eh? Unwashed and Somewhat Slightly Dazed reflected a strong Bob Dylan influence just mentioned with its harmonic harmonica, edgy guitar sound and snarling vocal. Also features a harmonica solo from former Rats frontman Benny Marshall. Of his performance he said, I did it in one take. They gave me a stand innovation in the control room when I finished. Oh, nice. Good on you, Benny. How oh, nice. Uh, in some ways you could say it's a precursor to the man who sold the world and even Hunky Dory, you know, these studies in alienation and madness is how Nicholas Pegg describes it in his great book, uh, The Complete David Bowie. My tissue is rotting and the rats eat my bones. I mean, it's a million miles from Uncle Arthur and all the rest of it, isn't it? I mean, also, you know, it's talking about he's assembling these ideas and themes that he will really explore properly in the 70s, which I think one of the reasons he called the album David Bowie, its initial form, you know, the first album, as you said, was called David Bowie. It's almost like, right, forget that one. I'm starting afresh now. This is where I really begin. It's funny, you know, because we have um, we have this thing on the uh, Six Music programme where we're talking about what was your first gig? And again, just going back to um, Pete Wiley, who was a guest on Cheap Things, mm. <laughs> we asked him on the programme, what was your first gig? And he went, oh yeah, it was uh, Davy Bowie at the Hard Rock in 1972. And he went on for ages about it, right. which is why you ended up interviewing him about yeah, it. Yeah. And then he went, actually, that wasn't my first gig. <laughs> I'd been to one beforehand, but I don't count that. And it's <laughs> it's a little bit like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And yeah. also, it's very interesting. I mean, because you're looking at like the Dylan influence, which is mm. all over this album, it is, like yeah. a rash. Uh, but then you've got the song for Bob Dylan, which most people, when they dissect it, and let's face it, most of Bowie's stuff has been dissected from here yeah, to there. Yeah. And uh, and it's supposed to be a diatribe against Bob Dylan for selling out yes, that's right. his audience, which, yeah. which was him. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, you know, he did that himself. Also, it's interesting because he's adopting here a lot of that kind of hippie paraphernalia, you know, the acoustic guitar, as you say, the curly hair, the you know, the, the flares and all the rest of it. But at the same time, he's rejecting it all. So he's sitting on the fence, really, isn't he? Yeah, well, he's hedging his bets. That's, that's what I want to say. <laughs> but, uh, but he'd also been to see uh, Bob Dylan with Ken Pitt. That's right, yes, And Ken Pitt looked after Bob Dylan. Yeah. So it all kind of fits in. But again, Bowie was not really that clear on exactly how big of an influence uh, Bob Dylan was going to be on him, even though it's quite apparent on this album. Certainly. Uh, but anyway, Bowie later explained the anger in the song to George Tremler, actually, author of the David Bowie story, which came out in 1974, which did uh, the first job for me of trying to explain exactly what Bowie was about yeah. and, and, the, and these strange guys that I was watching on top of the pops and everything it kind of put all of the uh, jigsaw pieces into place for me so yeah. it, it, it was a really important book for me that but anyway it said unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed explains how I felt in the weeks after my father died mm. so the man who sold the world it would see Bowie dealing with his half brother Terry's mental health problems it seems like this album and we'll go back to it later on is Bowie struggling to come to terms with his father's death because yeah. it really really affected him deeply didn't it yeah it did very much so uh, he also said and I quote him here Unwashed was a rather weird little song I wrote because one day when I was scruffy I got a lot of funny stares from people in the street the lyrics are what you hear about a boy whose girlfriend thinks he's socially inferior and you can jump to lots of conclusions here can't you because mm. you know you're wondering is this the sound of Bowie sort of trying to come to terms only with the fact that Hermione Farthingale had left him only recently during the sessions she was quite well healed she uh, was yeah and, and there- also actually just thinking about it uh, one of his uh, earlier squeezes was Dana Gillespie that's right and Dana Gillespie was is very, very well healed yeah. and and she also said because uh, you think about Bowie you know they were like they were like middle class you would have to say oh, yeah, probably yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know his father working at Bernardo's and everything mm. um, but she said he was like the most working class oik that she'd n- ever known <laughs> well, so like, <laughs> that's how well healed she was I mean she wanted to go down to the east end and meet some of the Larry types <laughs> that's but right. Bowie was cutting edge to her so uh, he must have had this inferiority complex of <laughs> hanging well, around with these women who were all like <laughs> from London Gentry who go skiing you know yeah that's right yeah yeah, completely different world I mean there's lyrics in there there's like spy spy pretty girl and you know and talk about I'm a louse in your father's house that kind of thing and there's all that kind of stuff one of the things that when the first time I ever heard this so be there what I'd be 14 15 or whatever and the one that really jumped out to me was you know I'm a phallus in pigtails I think what was that you know but anyway so 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 great I love this tune yeah so uh, we'll move on now then to Letter to Hermione which was a farewell ballad to Bowie's former girlfriend Hermione Farthingale again to George Tremlett he said uh, this is me in maudlin mood I'd written her a letter and decided not to send it right okay it seems that two or three months after their split Hermione ironically uh, wrote Bowie some letters the difference being that she did actually send them unlike him he speculated that they could have got back together obviously they didn't get back together which then begs the question it's an intriguing thought this isn't it if they had stayed together would Bowie have ever met Angie? Would his career have been different? Would he have had a career? Would it have been completely, you know, would have been done something else? Right. Well, it's another sliding door scene. We've just talked about one. Oh, he's off on tour now with Nana Muscori. Yeah. <laughs> as I would unlikely, have to see that. As yeah. unlikely as it might seem. Uh, but yeah, if he had stuck with Hermione, I mean, he, they could have been a folk duo that just didn't go anywhere. Or a trio with Hutch, whatever. Yeah, or even like an artist, you know, performance group doing ballet and dance, that kind of thing. Could have stuck with the poetry. Again, well, you know, with Hutch, he was talking about how there was uh, one section of the feathers mm. that he that he did with uh, with Bowie and Hermione and uh, they were off dancing together and he was playing in some spoken word yes. about, about a seagull. That's right. You know, and it just seems also <laughs> unlikely, but that's a... You, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I can't even think about that. But okay. anyway, Bowie admits uh, in the relationship he wasn't without blame. He said in 2002, I was totally unfaithful and couldn't for the life of me keep it zipped. 
Bad move on my part, pardon the pun, uh, as I'm sure it would have lasted a good long time if I'd have been a good boy. She quite rightly ran off with a dancer she met whilst filming. We met up again soon after I become Ziggy, but it was gone. Oh, it was well gone. The original demo of the song featured John Hutchinson, as you mentioned, of course, a great interview up on uh, Cheap Things site, uh, recorded in April 1969 with a more cryptic title of I'm Not Quite. Dot, dot, dot. Mm. Okay, to Signet Committee then. Uh, it's been called Bowie's first true masterpiece. Well, maybe. Uh, started life as a demo called Lover to the Dawn, commonly regarded as the album track most indicative of the composer's future direction. Its lead character is a messianic figure who breaks down barriers for his younger followers but finds that he has only provided them with a the means to reject and destroy him. Heavy stuff. It is, yeah. So it's Bowie really first toying with the idea of you know a superstar and what the role is, you yeah. know, how you can influence people. He himself described it at the time as a put-down of hippies who seem ready to follow any kind of charismatic leader, possibly influenced by the Fugs, who are one of the original counterculture East Coast bands in the States. But he was a big fan, as we know. Yeah, indeed. And the lyrics, screw up your brother or he'll get you in the end, possibly referring to his half-brother Terry, previously mentioned, possibly referring to the terminology used by hippies like brother yeah. this and brother that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Bowie considered Signet Committee to be the best song on the LP and would have been a single if not for the record company. Ooh, uh, apparently, though, Tony Visconti's favourite track on the LP was Janine. Yeah, that's mm. my, one of my least favourite, yeah, probably. same here. Again, originally uh, demoed with Hutch in April 69. On this recording, Bowie can be heard to say Janine is the girlfriend of a guy called George who does very nice album covers doesn't take much to put two and two together nope. you get George Underwood uh, though he needed to tread carefully because there's history here about uh, George Underwood Bowie and girlfriends isn't there there is the last time Bowie showed interest in one of George's uh, squeezes uh, George well he lamped him one and made his eye go all a bit wonky and gave him that distinctive look it was a blessing in disguise though, yeah. wasn't it, as we know it has been said as well that the song itself is less than complimentary the lyrics would suggest that in places they are cryptic though Right, well, he, the, what they're suggesting is that he didn't like her, <laughs> right? And so if he didn't like her, then that could have gone the other way. So Bowie ends up getting a belt of George Underwood for, like, stealing his girlfriend. Yeah. He could have got another belt of George Underwood for dissing her. Oh, he should have just said, oh, she's all right, you know? It's, yeah. jungle, it's a jungle out there, I tell you. It is. Uh, Janine was announced as a future single from the LP in the NME, but it wasn't to be. Let's move on now to An Occasional Dream about Hermione once again. Record a work from Tony Visconti and Tim Renwick. Again, originally demo with Hutch, who had a singing part in it. Yeah, moving on to The Wild-Eyed Boy from Free Cloud, which is great, presented in a heavily expanded form compared to the original guitar and cello version on the B-side of Space Oddity. The album cut featured a 50-piece orchestra, whereas the original acoustic version was recorded in 20 minutes at Trident Studios. It was, and I'll also mention uh, what Hutch says to me. I mean, uh, I can't put everything out there that he says because there'd be no point listening to it, no. but uh, but uh, it never dawned on me before, and it's probably been so well documented, that hmm. Space Oddity is actually written for two voices. It is, yeah. Well, you know, you know, didn't he say, Hutch, that it, initially Bowie had the idea of being, you know, England's answer to Simon and Garfunkel? So it was a, supposed to be a duo thing, He wasn't did it? want that. But yeah, if you think about Ground Control to Major Tom, yeah. they are the two characters and they had the different voices each in it. Yeah. Which just never even dawned on me because I'm a bit like that. <laughs> uh, Bowie's former lover, Mary Finnegan, said David wrote the song in the garden of her Foxglove Road home, uh, inspired by the games her son Richard had been playing. Again, in Nick Pegg's book, it suggested that both Jungle Book and another novel called The Wild Boy of Everyon could be a big influence on the writing on oh, that particular song. Okay. God Knows I'm Good, which is Bowie's observational take of a shoplifter's plight, and it's a swipe at consumerism and capitalism. Again, you know, strange to think this is the same man who'd end up as one of the richest rock stars in the world, and who, you know, started that whole thing about Bowie 
bonds, you know, putting himself up for shares. He became quite fiscally interested. He did, certainly. It's a great character song, though, isn't it? Apparently, Bowie was in floods of tears when he listened to the Finnish version. It had been difficult to nail, by all accounts, and it wasn't recorded uh, alongside all the other tracks for the album. I mean, it's a really poignant thing, isn't it, when you really listen to this, because it's a, it's a woman who goes into a department store, obviously, for... She wants a tin of stewing steak, so she slips it into a bag. And it's all about the worry and the perspiration that she tries to make for the door. There's a hand on her shoulder and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, so it is all about anti-consumerism yeah. and greed and capitalism and all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, much more uh, a straightforward tale is Memory of a Free Festival, which yeah. again we've covered in this podcast, uh, the actual festival itself. Mm. But it was his reminiscences of the Arts Festival that he'd organised on the 16th of August, 1969, with its drawn-out fade and chorus of some machines coming down and we're going to have party was compared to the Beatles' Hey Jude. The background vocals for the crowd finale featuring Bob Harris, his wife Sue, Tony Woolcott and Mark Boland amongst others. And it's funny, if you listen to it very closely you can hear, the sound machine is going down. It's going to be a bad Sorry, Bob. I don't know me having a bit of a laugh. Oh, nice one, mate. It's called Whispering Bob. What can you I do? I know. It's called, he's not going to sing it, is he? Anyway, so we, as you mentioned, we have covered the Free Festival in its own right in this series. So uh, as we know, it took place just after the death of Bowie's father. Bowie struggled to make it through the day, arguing with his girlfriend, Murray Finnegan, his future wife, Angela Barner, and his friend, uh, Calvin Mark Lee, as well, calling them materialistic arseholes when he found them counting money they'd raised selling hamburgers and psychedelic posters. I mean, it's a free festival, and they're the selling stuff. You're going to count the money at the end of the <laughs> of day, you aren't are. you? you have it to. Is, obviously, Bowie was in a very bad place at yeah, this point was. in time. But yeah. it, we we mentioned before, weren't they? They were cooking the hamburgers in a brand new wheelbarrow, weren't they? They were, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, great. Oh, how okay. bourgeois. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is strange. He also said at the time in an interview that many of his contemporaries were striving like mad for commercial success. I've never seen so many dishonest people in my life. Presumably, again, aimed at the hippies and the counterculture yeah. types and all that. Uh, though it had been levelled at David that he was desperate for success as well. And maybe he was a bit jealous of those around him who were making more headway than him. You know, mates like, I don't know, Stevie Marriott, yeah. Mark Boland, Peter Frampton. He, I, you know, Wild Billy Childish is one of my favourite artists. You yes. know, he's the head coach yeah. and all yeah. of that stuff. Um, but he, he's not he's not mad on Bowie, and we've had several discussions about it. Yeah. But he, he, that's what he always said. He said he just kept changing because he was so desperate for success, you know. Um, obviously, there was an element of truth in that, as we've talked about the uh, chopping and changing with yeah. his career. Uh, but he's really, Bowie's obviously got a real downer on those around him who have... have of taking off and he's yeah. not. Yeah, you can really understand it, can't you? You feel yeah. like you just uh, yeah, stopping still, as you say. Another thing which uh, I know that is in uh, Nick Pegg's book relates to the line, we scanned the skies with rainbow eyes and saw machines of every size. So this is a, it goes on to say that both David and Tony Visconti were regular attendees, a UFO spotting collective on Hampstead Heath, which is hosted by Leslie Duncan. Then we have touched on this before, haven't we? Yeah. Where they're convinced they saw flying saucers, which is a great little sort of little, sort of like a sideline here to this album. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I would love to speak to Tony Visconti about that. That would be yeah. that would be such a great yeah. thing just about those nights. Not you know everybody talks to Tony Visconti about the obvious things, but mm. to to just recall the nights with a load of people going, "There's one, yeah, <laughs> there's one." Oh no, it's a plane. Oh, and the funny thing is also, I mean, Bowie was obviously interested in all that kind of stuff because there's that story of him with Vince Taylor of Vince Taylor That's and the right. Playboys, who was a little bit off kilter. Yeah, and I think it's outside Tottenham Court uh, Tube Station. Yeah, on the on the pavement he's outside, got a, he's got a map uh, on the floor with all of his acolytes, David being one of them, mm. and he's saying right, the UFOs are going 
going to come in from over there. Yeah. Oh, oh, are they? Right, okay. Yeah, and they're going to come over there. They're going to land there. What are they going to do then, Vince? Well, they're going to go over there. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was definitely interesting. Yeah, I'm surprised Bowie didn't write more songs about space. Oh, weird, isn't it? So on to the production and release of the album. Before recording uh, for the album commenced at Trident Studios, the song Space Oddity had been selected as a lead single based on an earlier demo. Uh, Bowie's manager had approached, at the request of Bowie himself, George Martin, with the aim of the so-called Fifth Beatle producing the record. George Martin got back with a possibly less than polite refusal, <laughs> stating that he didn't like the single Space Odyssey. So th- at least Tony Visconti, who turned down the single, can say, well, it was me and George Martin, yeah. actually, who did turn it down. Yeah. And obviously Gus Dudgeon did it in the end. Absolutely, he was in good company. Uh, Kenneth Pitt then wrote in his diary, George Martin is fallible. Uh, Visconti, as you mentioned, saw it as a novelty record and passed the production on to uh, Gus Dudgeon, who saw the value in it. He did. Uh, however, Visconti produced all the remaining songs on the album. Tim Renwick, John Honk Lodge, Mick Wayne and John Cambridge, all from the band Junior's Eyes, featured on the album sessions and briefly served as Bowie's backing band for live appearances on an October 1969 BBC radio session. Although the opening song had given Bowie a number five hit in the UK earlier that year, the remainder of the stuff on the album bore little resemblance to Space Oddity and the album was a commercial failure on its initial release, despite some decent reviews. Well, here we go. The New York Times, in a review published over a year after the album's release, so therefore not really much use in the campaign, no. uh, praised the album, calling it a complete, coherent and brilliant vision. On the other hand, Village Voice critic Robert Kreisgau considered the album, like his debut, to be overwrought excursions. <laughs> He's very hard to please, isn't he, Kreisgau? He is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> However, the November 1972 reissue, released in the wake of Bowie's breakthrough with the rise and fall of Ziggy Star, artist and featuring a contemporary Ziggy photo on the cover as we mentioned got to number 17 in the UK and number 16 in the States. The plight of the LP wasn't helped by the fact that many of the key Bowie supporters at Mercury Records left the label at the time the single peaked in the charts taking with them the enthusiasm to push him further up the ladder of success. So in America, Bowie had just one man on his side, who again we've covered, Ron Oberman, yeah. uh, on his own, and he wasn't enough. No, of course not. No. So to the cover art now. So the original David Bowie LP cover artwork showed a facial portrait of Bowie by the British photographer Vernon Dewhurst, exposed on top of a work by the artist Victor Vassallery, uh, with blue and violet spots on a green background. The back of the album is a brilliant piece by Bowie's mate, George Underwood, as featured in the David Bowie's exhibition. Mm. Um, and, and George Underwood has been featured in this podcast himself. Yeah. Of course, a complicated piece giving clues to the contents of the album inside. He'd already done work for Bowie rival and friend Mark Boland's Tyrannosaurus Rex on the LP, My People Were Fair and Had Sky in Their Hair, dot, 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 dot. Yes, dot, yes, 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 yes. Uh, Bowie gave George some doodling to inspire him, one being a drawing of a fish in a wallet, perhaps again a swipe at consumerism and capitalism, and rats in hats. Now, yeah, now well, here yeah, we go. As yeah. you go, So a similar portrait was used in the uh, US uh, Mercury LP, Man of Words, Man of Music, and on a plain blue background. But, mm. intriguingly, now some copies of the David Bowie album have the word Pat written in ink on the artist's face. These are really, really rare. You don't really see these around at all, do you? There's only one of them, Bob, and I've yeah. got it. Now, oh, I think we all... might have mentioned this before, but there we go. That is the album, and oh. I bought it. There's, you know, the back cover Brilliant. with the, the, the Starman on it, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, uh, and, yeah, there's the rats on there, and the clown, and the fish, and, yeah. and Hermione. Yeah, in the clouds, isn't she there? Naturally, yeah. 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 Um, and the front cover, uh, like I say, uh, this is the uh, the original uh, UK release. Yes. Uh, but I bought it, and it had a flash on the, on the actual, a flare, if mm. you like, on the photograph on eBay. Right. And so I bought it. And it's in great nick. The album itself is in great nick and everything. But when I got it, 
it did have Pat written all over his face. We, um, and I will probably post a photograph of that. But I was so upset. But oh. then, you know, I, I couldn't get anything back from the uh, person I bought it off. Really? Uh, I don't know if it was Pat. Can't well, remember. That's not um, good. But I've got that, and I've got two versions, uh, two similar versions. Yeah. Identical, actually. Uh, of uh, Man of Words, Man of Music. Oh, nice. Yeah, liking them. They're very, very tasty. Both perfect copies. Oh. Uh, and I've also got the uh, Simply Vinyl version here, which is uh, oh, a, let's bit, have a, look at that, then. a bit it's more good. common. Yeah, that's nice. So it's a beautiful piece, isn't it? I'm just wondering, why would you even write somebody's name on Bowie's forehead on that record? I mean, if you're going to write your name on an album, you do it in the top left, don't you, on the back normally, or even on the inside sleeve? You would hope so, but... Uh, I mean, at that point in time, obviously, Bowie wasn't famous at no. all. And so they just obviously got it and didn't think this is going to be worth a fortune in the in the future. But, and it would have been worth more of a fortune if they hadn't put um, Pat on the cover yes. anyway. And I've also, yeah, we've all got yeah. that other version. I, of even I've got that one. Everybody's yeah. got that okay. one. Okay. So, okay, then, so we get to the personnel on the record. Yeah, we've got Davey Bowie, vocals, acoustic guitar, stylophone on Space Oddity, chord organ on Memory of a Free Festival, Kalimba. Tim Rennick on electric guitar. Keith Christmas on acoustic guitar. Mick Wayne on guitar. Rick Wakeman, Mellotron, electric harpsichord. Tony Visconti on bass, flute and recorder. John Lodge, bass guitar. It's not him out of the moody blues. No, it's not him, the other one. Uh, Herbie Flowers on bass. John Cambridge on drums. And Terry Cox on drums. And as mentioned before, Benny Marshall playing harmonica and he does some backing vocals as well. Yeah, and Paul Bookmaster on cello, who would reunite with Bowie later on, would he, in the 70s? He would. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking, $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer, actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early, 